welcome to Landscape Photography World, the podcast for everyone passionate about landscape photography. I'm Grant Swinburne, I'll be your host on this show, talking to landscape photographers about their motivation, likes and dislikes. This week, Rachel Talabart joins me to talk about her work. Rachel is a professional seascape and coastal photographer. Her critically acclaimed photographs of the ocean and coast have been featured in the press all over the world. Rachel is represented by galleries in Europe and the USA. Her work is frequently exhibited and her limited edition prints are collected internationally. She's the author of three monographs, including Sirens and most recently Tides and Tempests, and she writes for photography magazines. Rachel grew up on the south coast of England. Her first career was as a solicitor in the city of London. During the city years, Rachel's friends and colleagues were used to seeing her return from trips with bags full of exposed film. The development sometimes cost more than the trip. In 2008, she converted to digital, and she says that is when the obsession really set in. In 2000, Rachel left her city career, and after obtaining two more degrees, she now works full-time on her photography. Much of her early childhood was spent at sea. This has left her with a lifelong fascination for the ocean in all its forms, but especially in stormy weather. Rachel travels widely for her photography, but retains a special fondness for the south of England, and many of her images are created there. For Rachel, nothing beats a day on an empty shore. The wilder the weather, the better, and this is reflected in her work. She owns F11 workshops, providing location and online photography training, and she leads international photography tours for ocean capture. An experienced teacher and lecturer, Rachel is particularly interested in the creative aspects of photography. We discuss the business of photography, how her creative style has changed, along with a lot more. I hope you enjoy the show. G'day, Rachel. Welcome to Landscape Photography World. How are you going? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for inviting me on the show, Grant. Absolute pleasure. You've been on my list for a little while and I've heard you on a number of other podcasts, so really excited to have you on and talk to you a little bit about your work. Rather than start traditionally with how you got started and all of that sort of thing, <laughs> I thought, why don't you describe to me what it is that you do and a little bit about how you do it? Sure. Um, so I'm a, a full-time professional uh, photographer and I specialise in the coast and the sea. Um, so I have two companies. One is the portfolio company, which is the core of the business that's selling um, limited edition fine art prints through galleries and the and image licensing, of course, we will mm -hmm. do that. Um, and the other one is a workshops company, so leading workshops. And I also do workshops for ocean capture which some people may have heard of as well. And that's, that's the core of what I do, but I guess that's the boring stuff. More interesting, I, I spend as many days as I can, which isn't as many as I'd like, standing by the sea, preferably in really rough weather. I like storms and trying to capture photographs of nature at its scariest. Nice. <laughs> well, I'm going to ask you a little bit later about possible scary situations, but uh, before that, why don't we talk a little bit about how you got started and what what started this passion and motivates you to stand there in terrible conditions, looking at waves and the worst that nature can bring? Well, I grew up sailing. Um, my dad was a very keen yachtsman. And we used to go away every weekend if the weather allowed and all of the school holidays were spent at sea. And we would go away for, in the summer, we'd go away for a whole month 
and wow. live on okay. live on the boat. And um, you know, there was some those. I'm you know, I'm not a youngster, so this is before GPS and all of that. Um, right. So we would have long, long sea crossings where there was nothing to see but the horizon. Um, right. I was and remain quite a poor sailor. I get seasick all the time. And so for me, yeah, sailing was, I mean, they say, don't they, that after you've been at sea for a couple of days and been really sick, you'll be fine. Well, maybe other people are, but... <laughs> not your experience. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not my experience. Um, so when Dad gave up long-distance sailing when I was in my early teens, I was, I was quite relieved. Um, but I did, as I think was inevitable, form an attachment to the ocean, mm. even though it made me feel really poorly. Um, you know, you're stuck, if you're a kid and you're sitting, you can't go down below because you feel sick. So you yep. sit in the cockpit for a day, practically straight, where you're sailing with nothing in sight. Um, you've got nothing to do but look at the sea. So I used to spend a lot of time looking at the sea and like all kids, you know, amusing myself with my imagination. So mm. sometimes the waves would look like mountains, sometimes they'd look like creatures. And that's really stuck in my head. And then the obsession with storms, I think, came from that too, because the sort of motion that makes you really sick for me in a small boat wasn't really rough seas. It's that sort of rolling, yeah. you know. Um, um, so the days when my dad thought, yes, this is a perfect day for sail were the worst days for me. But occasionally we got caught out in bad weather and those days you didn't i didn't feel sick i mean that, that was more about bracing yourself in the cockpit as the waves came crashing over you we were all the whole family there with our oil skins on as we used to call them the waterproof yep. clothing the hat um and just getting slapped around the face by spray it's not it doesn't make you feel sick it's slightly ter well more than slightly terrifying <laughs> but also <laughs> really exciting Really some, some sailors would call it bracing. <laughs> yeah, bracing. That's a wonderfully British word for it, isn't it? It was bracing, chaps. <laughs> a bracing day. Um, and I used to love that. I used to find that thoroughly exciting. And I think that's just stuck in my head ever since. Mm, cool. What is it that you're chasing, I guess, in your photography? What What is it that gets you out of bed and down by the sea, either first thing in the morning or, or late at night or whenever it is? Yeah, I'm always chasing something that's quite hard to find, which is um, something a little bit different. Mm. Um, I, it's kind of become unpopular to say that you look for difference in your work. And I recently listened to a couple of podcasts where the people being interviewed were you know, quite forthright in their disapproval of other photographers who claim they're looking for difference. And I understand, I mean, it's really hard anyway. Can we really find difference now when everything's been done? But still, I'm looking for photographs that just give me that. You know, when I look at them, I think, oh, that's a little bit different. That's yeah. interesting. That's unexpected. I'd like to surprise people a little bit, I guess, and show them things in a way that they might not have seen them if they've been there yeah. so uh, it doesn't have to be a storm because I also do much calmer work and um, I do a lot of detail and abstract work too and I enjoy that just as much mm. but uh, it tends to be harder to enthuse other people about it because it's not gnarly you know <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, I, yeah. Um, 
So I'm looking, I'm looking for um, anything like that. And it, the nice thing about that is that it, I don't need to be in particular locations. I just need the sea. Um, and that's really liberating because it means that unlike a lot of landscape photographers, I don't have to charge about all over the world going to extreme places because everywhere else has been done. All yeah. I need is floor and it could be anywhere, which is really nice. Nice, nice. Do you have goals in your work? Do you set yourself goals? And if so, how do you go about that? What's your thought process in terms of setting those goals and what do you do to can then construct, I guess, the project that meets those goals? Yeah, I mean, sometimes there are goals. If I've thought of a project, if I've got an idea, then I am definitely hoping to make more photographs for that project and mm. um i mean one one of the projects that i've done that is well complete more or less there's one more thing to do is uh, called sirens and it's yep. photographs of big storm waves named after mythology mm. and i got the idea for that um before i actually captured any of the photographs that are now in that portfolio um i didn't just get the idea out of the blue um, and I, I got it through working that location and making lots of other photographs there repeatedly over a whole winter. Um, you know, I, I do believe no one's going to get the brilliant idea, you know, what to them seems a brilliant idea, sitting on their couch watching Game of Thrones, although, you know, we all like that. Happened, that happened, yeah, pretty rare. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that happens. <laughs> um, mostly I get my ideas while I'm actually out making photos even yep. if I'm not making the photos that end up in that portfolio. So once I had the idea to photograph these isolated waves with um, mythological figures in mind, then I then I went out looking to make them, but I needed the right conditions. Mm. I got very lucky. We got a really super storm here about two weeks after that. So then I went down knowing exactly what I wanted. And because I knew the location really well, because I've been going there every week, for a whole winter, sometimes twice a week. Um, I Once I got there, it was actually a really nice sense of flow because I had already done the groundwork. I'd learned the location. I knew what, what weather worked there, how it would affect the location, where to, where to be mm. and when to be there. And so I just had six of the best hours of my life just lying on the beach, getting absolutely pummeled by the storm and photographing it and knowing that I was capturing the pictures that I pre-visualized. I mean, obviously Fantastic. not exactly because waves are random, but yeah, knowing you can't, you can't predict with what they're yeah. actually going to do. No, but I, I had done everything it was possible to do. I think to make myself ready for capturing whatever it was that the waves would do. And mm. that was really exciting. But I by no means work like that all the time. Like everybody else, I'm quite often just, oh, wow, I actually have a day free photography for photography, which I don't have any more days free for it because it's my job than anybody else. And you all yep. know that, you know, we're super busy doing all the stuff that goes into running a business mm. and actually getting out with the camera just to make your own work isn't that easy. So if I do have a day for that, but I don't have a particular project in mind i will try and be really open-minded um, yeah. and i will end, inevitably i'll end up going to a beach i know really well because 
I've explored all the local beaches and they're not that local for me anyway, because I live near London. Um, mm. So it's not like I'm going somewhere new. I will just go down there and see what happens. And um, there's something nice about that too, isn't there? Surrendering to the chance. Definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, quite often ask uh, photographers who come on the show about whether they're a planner or a more spontaneous type of photographer. Where would you put yourself on that spectrum? I'm ever so boring. I did a podcast with uh, Alistair Benn, as you probably have heard it. Yep. And uh, I think every time he asked me to pick one or the other, I was in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that is kind of who I am. Like everyone witters on about being an introvert uh, as yep, if it's yep. the only cool way to be a photographer. I'm not. I'm in the middle. I Some of me is an extrovert. Some of me is an yeah. introvert. I'm a balance of the two. And I think most people are actually. And um, and so I, I like to be as balanced as I can with most things. So I want I'm just greedy. I want that. <laughs> I want to plan, and I want to be spontaneous. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the thing I, I I find myself when I'm planning something, the plan changes, and that could be in the planning phase or in the execution phase because you get there. And the conditions aren't quite what you expected or the conditions change while you're there and you have to change the plan because things happen, you know. And, oh, I completely uh, agree. I, I, mean, again, I think I anyone that plans it right down to the very detail is, is probably, not. I'm not saying they're taking boring photos, but they're, they're probably, you know, photographing something that's not going to move. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely right. And I think, for, like, the example I gave you of sirens and that first storm, if when I had got to the beach, the conditions hadn't been right, I wouldn't have just said, oh, well, gone to the pub or gone home. You know, I would have actually just gone and done some work that those conditions suited. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it, it's really important, especially when you're busy and you haven't got a lot of time, to be super adaptable, I think. Yeah. How important is it to have projects for, for you personally? It suits the way my brain works. Um, I, in fact, now if I capture a standalone photograph, even if it's awesome, I'm always just slightly grumpy. <laughs> it doesn't fit in one of <laughs> doesn't my... doesn't quite um, fit into the, into the yeah. concept that you've got. Yeah. yeah. So I always have lots of projects on the go. Though. I, I, I can't... I think it would be super, super efficient and I'd love to be like it if you could just say right now, this year I'm working on project X and just do that. That yeah. I'm sure would be a really, really efficient way to work. But I've learned over the years that it just doesn't keep me excited. So I've got to have lots of projects on the go. And the nice thing about that is that there's more chance that the picture I made is going to fit one of my projects. Um, yeah, so for me, I, I think my brain likes to have lots and lots of things going on at the same time. Um, it works better for me and keeps me creative. And I mean, I give talks about workflow. Mm. And I think the best thing that I can possibly say when I give that talk is, this is the workflow that I've got from my brain that I've learned works to keep me motivated. It might not be right for someone else's brain. Yep. Um, so you, you can cherry pick things from other people's workflows that suit you and, and build your own. I think that's quite important. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's something that I tell my workshop participants and, and clients, and they're sort of asking how to take better photos is 
develop a workflow that fits the way that you want to take photos. Don't yeah. copy what I do. Yeah. I, I can tell you what I do, <laughs> but that not, might not suit what you want to do. And so it's really what, what I try to teach them is looking for things that are going to be of interest to them and yeah. and then use their creativity to actually how important i guess for, for you in in your workshops and so forth is it to get that across to people it's everything um i've built the whole business around uh, nurturing the um, personal vision of, of the client mm. i would consider a workshop a complete and utter failure if my clients all came away with pictures that look like mine, um, <laughs> you know, that, there, there will always be, I'm sure you've seen, there will always be some people who come on a workshop and that's all they want to do. Yeah. And yeah. I want to copy what you do. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And they will milk, milk your brains because I, I, I share freely. I don't think you can teach and hold back. Oh no, um, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. I know some people do, but I have no idea how to do it. I can't. So I will share freely how to do it. And I do have some, clients who who go away and and produce sirens portfolios of their own or whatever mm. um i don't often see them again because they've just got what they wanted and they're done they've moved they're on, yeah. yeah they're gone to the next person who's got an idea they like so they can copy them but they're rare and most of my clients come back and they come back because precisely because that's not their objective because they want to have something far more rewarding, which mm. is to create something of their own. And because I am all about that, um, you know, I have I have people I mentor, and there is absolutely no way that I'm mentoring them to to make my photos. The goal is to find what what works for them, because they've got a different worldview than I have and a different absolutely. life experience. Yeah. And we want we want them to share that with us. That will be meaningful art. Absolutely. In terms of the, the, the projects, you mentioned with Sirens that you've got that concept in mind before you've taken any photos. Are there any projects you're working on or have worked on uh, that the opposite has been true, where you've sort of got the started to build a portfolio and then gone, okay, well, I think there's something here that I can actually pull together? Yeah, they've definitely worked that way around too. Um, at the moment, I'm working on a project. In fact, I haven't told anyone about this. Uh, there you go. <laughs> Exclusive. Exclusive. Not that anyone cares. <laughs> that anyone cares. Um, a project called Sea Change, um, which is um, much more abstract than Sirens. It's photographs of things that the sea has altered, that it's carved into yeah. art. So obvious things that are ca potential candidates for that are... Um, sand patterns, mm -hmm. um, worn textures on sea defences, and some surprising things as well that I won't talk about yet. But yeah. um, that really is pulling together existing work and then continuing to make new work for the project. I'm really enjoying it. I've made a little, I can't find it now, so I can't wave it at you in any way. Your listeners wouldn't see it, but I made a blurb <laughs> book over the summer of the project at the, you know, as far as it had got. And when it arrived, I felt really excited about the project. Mm. It's quite a nice thing to do. I mean, it's not cheap, uh, but you know, if you're just making one for yourself and you wait for the 40% off offer, um, it's not too bad. And and there's nothing like that for sort of opening a, a book you've made, 
feed and seeing your pictures for re-energizing you to keep working on that project absolutely yeah no i i, I do something very similar and uh, i absolutely love seeing my own work and and other people's but you know that creation of the physical form i think is you know sort of for me anyway it, it's very close to the pinnacle of uh you know photography if it's if it's not in that physical form it's not quite there it's, the screen's okay but it's just not finished as far okay. as i'm concerned <laughs> well i'm with you completely i mean i absolutely love printing for example you probably see behind yep. me um and i print every every new edit um, you know, if it's a picture that I think has got has got legs, it's going to go somewhere. I print it and pin it to mm. the wall, and it, it's not until I've done that that it feels like a proper photograph. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, no, I I'm, I'm totally with you on that. Um, I guess what do you do when a project isn't working for you? You, I mean, I, I I've certainly had projects where I've got to you know part way through. And gone. Eh, it's just not happening. It's just <laughs> it's it's not working. What do you do when that happens? And how do you how do you deal with that? Do you reshape it, or do you, you know, just throw it in the bin, or leave it on the shelf and until later and come back to it? Usually, the last one of those. Um, so I, I don't. I'm very untidy in Lightroom in that I don't delete yep. stuff. They're obvious, complete disasters. Like you know, you started a long exposure and then you got bored and changed your mind and you've got a, a black rectangle you know those those can go but um <laughs> the rest i i keep and um, because the photographer i am today is i i know for sure is not going to be the same as the photographer i'll be next year or the year mm. after and i might see potential in a picture that i today don't see potential in you know in two years i might actually see that picture very differently or it might suit a different project or whatever but yeah, I mean, I've got tons of projects that are half formed and the work is sitting in collections in Lightroom and it will sit there for a very long time. I'm not mm. going to delete it. Um, I, it just works for me to be that way. And I've got some pictures that now for me are really, really successful. That if I'd been tidy in Lightroom and deleted them, because they weren't what I was looking for at the time, they would be gone and I would never have, have had the income. Let's <laughs> be boring about this. This is a job. I would never have had the income from those pictures and they've done really, really well for me. So I definitely think it's it's um, it's worth being a bit untidy and not not going through and you know, putting using the pick flags and the X flags and yep, rejecting yep. the leaking, um, <laughs> for sure. Um, but getting away from the like mechanics of Lightroom back to the core of your question. I have, and it's, it's not something that's come easily to me, but I've taught myself over time to think of everything I do as a step towards the next thing. Mm. So even if the thing that I've done today hasn't actually worked out very well, maybe doing it was really important in my sort of journey to something that does work out. Yep. And it's a really, I found that to be a really nice mindset. Mm. It just takes the pressure off. So if I've removed results from the pressure, if I'm no longer requiring everything I do to yield results, then I just enjoy what I'm doing so much more. I chill out about it. I relax. I'm much more willing to experiment 
do crazy things that most people say I'm wasting your time. Yeah. Because I'm not immediately connecting this with the need for a, a result. Yeah. And yeah. it's not easy to get that mindset, especially if you've had a, a career, my first career as a lawyer in the city of London where you don't waste time. You know, everything yeah. has to be be efficient and yield results. So I've had to retrain my brain to think that way. But now I'm I'm you know, I wouldn't say I always manage it, but if I find myself putting on the pressure to get results, if I'm aware that I'm doing that, then I give myself a sound talking to and and try and put that aside because I think it's the enemy of creativity. Yeah, I'm I'm T- totally agree. The, the the number of times where I've sort of sat back and thrown a, a maybe not an entire portfolio in the bin, but don't, again, like you, I don't delete anything, <laughs> but just stopped doing it or an individual image, for example, and just said, well, it's not doing what I want it to do. And some of that can be mood. Some of that can be because I, you know, didn't quite nail the technical aspects and that could be either the post or the or the photographic technical aspects and the thing that I do then is think okay stop take a take a look at it and go okay well that was a mistake that was a mistake these are the things that I need to do and change to move on and grow that growth mindset of saying okay well each of these steps gets me to the to the next yeah. one is, is totally the right way of uh, of thinking about it, as far as I'm concerned. Well, we um, seem to think like on a lot of things. Yeah, it seems that way. <laughs> <laughs> when did the art side of things take over from the recording side of things? This is something that I ask pretty much everyone. There's the, there's the point where, you know, you start taking photos and worse, they're snapshots. And sometimes you might nail a composition. Sometimes you might nail all of the all of the aspects. But at some point you go, okay, well, this is something that I'm reasonably good at. Now I want to turn it into art. When did that happen for you? Yeah, that's a good question. I, oh, you're asking questions I haven't been asked before. That's good. Oh, <laughs> well done. Um, yes, yeah, so uh, like everybody, when I started photography as a, um, an amateur and eventually an enthusiast, um, I, I was recording what I saw. I actually, for a long time, the camera for me was stood in for um, a traveling companion, which makes me sound like Billy No Mates. But, you know, I, <laughs> as a youngster, I was quite intrepid. Sometimes it makes me quite astonished how intrepid I was. And mm. um, I remember, for example, when I was in my early 20s, I just qualified as a solicitor and I was allowed to take unpaid leave. So I went off around the world with my backpack and my 35 millimeter compact camera. And yep. that was it. I was on my own and um now i mean if my if my daughter who's about the same age as i was when i did that if she said she wanted to do it i'd be terrified but you yeah. know when you're young you think you'll live forever right that's so, it um, uh, you're bulletproof yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly um and you know there is a nice thing isn't there when you see something amazing if you're at all an extrovert if there's any part of you that's got that you will want to share it you want to turn to your neighbor, your husband, your wife, your kids, your whoever, and say, wow, that's awesome. Look at that. Yep. And they will react. And of course, I was completely alone. 
So it seemed my camera fulfilled that role. It seemed that when I saw something that took my eye, if I took a photograph, I was more, I'd, it, it was more real somehow. I'd sort of acknowledged the reality of this amazing thing that I'd seen and i shared it with my camera, which is, sounds a bit pathetic. I didn't actually talk to my camera. That would be really <laughs> weird. <laughs> Mind but, you, there's, um, there's cameras you can talk to now. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm not going there. Not yet, anyway. <laughs> um, so, but essentially I was recording what I saw and sharing it with my camera in the process. Um, I, I don't think there was much artistry although i would never dismiss the artistry involved in in simply composing mm. a, a record shot well i think there is a lot of artistry in that and i'm quite careful not to dismiss the the art in the record shop because there can be a lot of skill and artistry there um, totally. but essentially i was recording what i saw the big turning point the epiphany moment came uh, quite late in 2015, in fact, okay. in April, April 2015, I even know the month. Um, and I was in Venice and I was doing a masterclass with a Canadian photographer called Michael Levin. Yep. I don't know if you've heard of him. I have heard um, of him, yeah. Yeah, he'd be a good person to have on your show, actually. Anyway, okay. um, he was doing this masterclass um, and his work is very minimal, long exposures. I guess you'd say he's in the Michael Kenner school, although yeah. um, he's like all the, the good photography artists, he's made it his own. He hasn't just copied Michael Kenner. You know, he's very much done his own work. And there was a lot of classroom learning, um, but there was some time to go out and make photos as well. Mm. And I'm a bit of a, a Venice file. I've been to Venice a lot. So when the we had photography time. I didn't necessarily feel like I needed to stay with the group. And that's pretty typical for me. I, you know, I like people, but here comes the introvert bit as I both going on. I don't really like making my work in a crowd. I like to be on my own when I actually create photos. Right. So on the last morning we had fog, which was very exciting as having been to Venice seven times and never had fog. I was super excited to get it. And I went out and I went off, left the group and I went off and found a quiet corner and I made a photograph. It's just five posts, mooring posts, and there's some gulls in it and nothing much else. It was before sunrise and everything was really quiet and there were no vaporettos, you know, no gondoliers, no tourists mm, mm. because it was too early and only natters like us photographers would be yep. out then. <laughs> I was completely alone. And I made this photograph. It's got loads of negative space in it. It's mostly negative space. And I called the photograph five, just because there are five posts. And I yep. don't reference Venice at all. There's, there are no Venice landmarks. There, and the title doesn't reference Venice. And I realized that I was now making a photo that didn't record a recognizable place. There mm. wasn't really a proper landscape photograph because those are typically named after the place and they record yep. a place that it was instead my first conscious attempt to create a picture that expressed an emotion rather mm. than a place. And the emotion for me was quite complicated, despite all that negative space. But essentially, um, because I was at the time making a big decision too, and I just made the decision in that moment, and I felt a great sense of peace and you know, of calm and of relief because 
it was a decision I'd been wrestling with and I, I'd made it. And that's what I tried to express in the photograph. And the big decision was, I won't go on and do a PhD in maritime literature, which is what I had been planning to do. I will okay. instead, I'll leave that behind and I'll try and become a full-time professional photographer working in the art market, so selling prints through galleries. So the whole thing came together and that was the moment that I started to try to make more artistic, oh, it's so hard to say that, it just is going to put people's backs up, but I don't want to do that. <laughs> I don't worry about that. <laughs> I'm going to make photos that are, are not about recording what I've seen, but about expressing something else. Yeah, uh, I, I, for me, I think that's that's the important thing is, and it's why I asked that question is, you know, there has to be, I think, a conscious decision that you are going to change from that, okay, here's a nice scene, I've taken that, and that can be very artistically done, certainly not disparaging that as a style of photography yeah. in any way, shape or form. It, 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 it has its own nuances. But I think that decision where you sort of stop doing that recording and turn it into something that is expressing an emotion is is that point of difference that starts to change the way that you actually think about photography. And yeah. I guess, you know, my follow-on from that question before is how did it change the way that you actually thought about it? It changed it um, completely. It was a fundamental shift and it was interesting because um it is really great to go on these master classes if you can with people who are already well established where you want to be mm. um michael said some interesting things because we had um classroom time and he showed us how he processed his photographs now uh, his photographs are very clean minimal i've heard people use adjectives like pure when yep. they talk about work and the other people in the group, a number of them were very shocked to discover just how much Photoshop work went into them. And it was huge. And he was very, again, another teacher who doesn't hold back, which I really appreciate. He was very yep. generous with his knowledge and that was a tremendous plus for him. And he showed us from raw file how he, and in his case, heavily, heavily manipulated the pictures so that the final picture looks incredibly clean and pure. And of course, we are all used to seeing amazing photographs that have actually been really, really heavily manipulated, but it's been done so well that you don't notice. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, the ones we all complain about, the, you know, we say, oh, it's been Photoshopped, that give all of that bad name, are the ones where it's been done badly, right? So that yeah. we all notice that it's there's something wrong here we might not know what it is but it just feels artificial yeah. he did it really well so his people and these other people were i think a little disappointed initially and he said something which is the whole point of this ramble um he said why would you constrain your art by some yeah. sort of rule that you can't manipulate it mm. and i that I, that i took that to heart but because of what I'm photographing, because of the subject that I'm working with, and because I don't do very often do super long exposures, I, I'm much more likely to work at the fast end of the shutter speeds. I prefer, I've chosen not to do heavy manipulation. 
And I find creatively rewarding the space that I'm in. And mm. that space is trying to create art that I think expresses an emotion without changing nature in my picture. Yep. So I don't want to work with what nature's offering me and try and inject my own vision into it. Mm. So um, it's hard to explain without an example. And the example we'll, we'll go back to, because we've talked about it already, is is sirens. Yeah. A lot of people do say to me, oh, well, you've, you know, you've CGI'd that. That's what I get quite a lot. <laughs> CGI, <laughs> not, wow. <laughs> not, from, not, not from photographers, but bear in mind that my work is always being exhibited. So I'm I'm getting feedback from non-photographers more often sure, than I sure. photographers. And they'll use words like CGI instead of Photoshop. Yeah. Um, and, and the reason they're saying that is because they've never seen waves looking like that. Because if you're out in a Category 10 storm and you're just watching it, all, what you're going to notice is the movement. Yeah. You're not going to be able, you're, you won't freeze a wave at a thousandth of a second. Mm. With the camera, I can freeze a wave at a thousandth of a second. Yeah, and you can freeze every droplet. Yeah. Exactly. And then you see the shapes. Mm. But for me, I made it was part of that project that I wouldn't create the shapes myself, that they had to be there in yep. the way. Um, and I'm not going to say that it would have been wrong for me to do it another way. But I, again, we're going back to doing, having a workload that suits your brain. And yeah. for me, it really worked. I liked the idea of just sharing what was actually there, but no one else could see it. Yeah. I was having an interesting conversation earlier this weekend, actually, with a number of other photographers who were actually at a, a, a meet-up and, um, you know, taking some shots and whatever and, sitting around the the table having a, a cup of coffee afterwards and the the a, a comment was made by one of the photographers that they don't like editing and i kind of said that's kind of like cutting off one of your arms when you want to hang wallpaper because the editing and the photography itself the in-field work are two sides of the same coin, you know. I and I and the, the example I actually used was back in the day. If you didn't have a dark room, you sent your photos off to the chemist or wherever, and two weeks later you got a set of prints back, and you go through the prints and you go, yeah, no, no, no. Oh, there's there's one that I put in an album, you know. And I, I said, what you what you're basically saying is you're happy with that as the result, as opposed to where you've actually got your dark room and you know you've got your computer you've got your dark room light room whatever you want to call it photoshop and you can basically control every aspect of the production of the final work and if you're throwing away you know, and i get you know part of that is a learning and the challenge of understanding the way the programs work and what each slider does and how that manipulates color and contrast etc cetera, etc cetera. but i said you've really got to actually take that by the bit and run with it because if you don't you're actually losing as i said one of your arms in where you want to hang your wallpaper it's just it's like you, you you're kind of chopping off your, your your options in a big way if you're not and it wasn't that they didn't do editing they just didn't like it and didn't enjoy doing it and that that to me is a bit anathema i i i 
kind of enjoy doing it as much as I enjoy the field work almost. I think the field work is far, far more interesting and far more invigorating, but I, I certainly see the importance of getting behind the computer and, uh, and just working the image to, to get what I want. Yeah. I mean, for me, I, I don't disagree with you at all. Um, I absolutely, it, it annoys me. It's a pet peeve. Mm. Um, when I go to a photography exhibition and I see a sign saying these images have not been um, photoshopped. Yeah. Um, yeah. It may be true. They may, be, <laughs> may have been light wound. Um, but the whole thing is, is I know why people do it. It's because they, they hear the public say it's been CGI'd. And they're trying yeah, to well, see you've, that you've added something to the image that wasn't yeah. there originally. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but I think we do photographers a disservice when we allow ourselves to pander to that attitude. Um, yeah. And absolutely. I mean, in fact, in your example from film, it's um, it's even worse than that, isn't it? Because the prints totally. that come back, those are the JPEGs, right? Yeah. Um, so <laughs> if, you, if you're sitting looking at your raw file and, and you're, it's not quite the same as the negative that came back with the prints, but it's a bit closer to that. I yeah. mean, that's just not going to cut that up and put it in your album, are you? So, I mean, I completely agree. We, If you don't develop, and I use the word develop because for me it's Lightroom, and they use the word develop. If you don't develop your work um, in processing, then either you are shooting JPEGs, in which case you have let some nerds in California decide how your picture should look. That's and right. That's or <laughs> you're not editing your raw file, in which case, my goodness, I mean, that's that's absurd. You know, your raw file is just data. It's, you know, even even just letting it come into Lightroom, something had to be done to it. That's so exactly it. it. Yeah. So, there, there is a conversion yeah. process going on regardless of what you do. Yeah. So why why wouldn't you take control of that? And and I'm I love that. I love that about digital. I'd much rather sit at, at my computer screen with a glass of wine than mm. be in, in the uh, you know in the dark room, the wet dark room for sure. Um, but I would also say that. I, like you, much prefer being outside with the camera. Mm. And because that's my happy place, that's where I'm going to be most creative. It's inevitable. So I've adopted, again, my own workflow for me, I've adopted a workflow where as much as possible is achieved when I click the shutter and as little as possible has to be done back at the computer. And that keeps me motivated and energized because it suits that's my happy place on the beach um yeah. but of course every picture has to be developed um and you know if i'm i looking thinking about my portfolio not just what's on my website but the larger portfolio um i think there might be four i'm guessing i think there might be four photographs in there that involve two exposures that uh, where i brought together elements from two different photographs Sure. Now, I might be wrong, it might be five, it might be three, but, yep. you know, you've got the idea. So it shows you how rarely I do that, which mm. means that I don't have to go into Photoshop very often at all. Yeah, um, yeah. And I, I can do it all in Lightroom, and that's a really nice streamlined workflow. And I print from Lightroom, so it's all it's all quite efficient. And although I slightly tongue-in-cheek say this to people when they ask, it's not entirely untrue. I probably don't spend more than 10 minutes editing any particular photograph. But it's not because that's right. It's just because I've adopted a workflow that suits my brain. Yeah. And I, I work with another photographer 
who does a lot of the um, classroom workshops with me for my clients, including the developing workshops and the printing workshops. And he loves working on his computer and mm -hmm. it makes him energized and he is super creative in Lightroom and in Photoshop with his work. And he's always finding out new things that he can do and they infuse him. And that's great. That works for his brain. So yeah, I'm being very accepting, but you know, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's great. I guess in terms of that feeling that you're trying to convey, what, what is it that you are trying to communicate to people? Obviously, a lot of your images are very impactful and your style has sort of developed that way. Is, is it that impact that you're trying to get across or, or, or is it something more subtle? Yeah, I mean, the, I think I've, I am known for photographing impactful things like giant storm waves. I mm. And not just impactful artistically. They, if you've got one of their, yeah. Waves, if you if you get hit by one, you'll know it. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and so those, in a way, those pictures are always going to have impact because the subject is impactful. But mm. I do equally enjoy um, the little details that um, I you know, may not be instantly impactful. I mean, certainly on social media, they get far less attention. People are not going to go, wow, awesome, because they're not that sort of picture. Um, and I enjoy doing those just as much. And now, possibly even more, because Sirens is pretty well done and I've moved on. Um, so at the moment, I seem to be completely obsessed with the nuances of light on wet sand. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, that's shooting with my 24 to 70 millimeter low, you know, fairly low setting on the tripod. Yep. pointing down at my feet um sometimes literally my feet they do insist on getting in the picture sometimes <laughs> but uh, most of the time not and i've just noticed how sand catches the light at the beginning and end of the day and how seawater interacts with that and the foam at the edge of a, a wave with a slow shutter how it moves across mm -hmm. the sand and those are really quite abstract not fully abstract because I think anyone who's ever looked at down when they're on the beach will know what I'm photographing. Yeah, they'll recognise it. Yeah. Yeah. And I I absolutely love doing that. And that has become quite therapeutic. Um, I mean, you know, without getting into we, we don't we shouldn't get into politics, but this country's in a complete mess. And it has been for about <laughs> I don't think you're years. on your own. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, and it's quite hard. And you're, I mean, I, I, someone did a DNA test. I got a DNA test for Christmas one year and the results came back and said, I'm 97% London. <laughs> now, I don't know how they know London. That's amazing. But I'm how clearly, they define it, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm clearly English to the core and it is quite tough to see your country going mm. ever more rapidly downhill. So, you know, quite apart from any personal issues that we all have in our lives, there's that. And um, I have found doing this sort of photography where I just set the camera on the tripod, point it down and just potter along the beach, waiting for a, a wave to do something gentle and peaceful and beautiful on the sand. It's really therapeutic. Yeah. And yeah. so I'm hoping that those pictures express that, mm. express that sense of 
peace and um, and escape, escape from all of this going on around us. And just this little thing at our feet is actually profoundly beautiful if yeah. we take the time to notice it. And I hope that those pictures will express that. Right. In terms of your style, uh, you've obviously got a very distinct style and that's developed over over a few years. How much do you feel that it's still developing and are you very conscious of changes in your style through the period that you've been putting out work? Yeah, it's changing all the time. I hope it never stops changing because I think if, if I become set in something then that's the time to stop doing this and move definitely on and do something. yeah <laughs> no it's changing all the time but the nice thing is that what i've learned again is and you i'm sure that you will have the same experience is that at some point you realize that you can make work for yourself mm. that isn't necessarily going to be published and sold and that's that it, work yeah. is very valuable it might not be financially valuable, but creatively it's hugely valuable. Mm. And you should make as much time for that as you do for the work that you know is going to be commercial. And sometimes when you're, as I do, you're, you're, you're fully professional, fully earning your living from your photography. Sometimes it is hard to persuade yourself. You might think that you should always prioritize the work that's going to sell. Yeah, yeah. But I think there's creative depth on that part. Mm. because you'll just become stuck in a groove um, and you'll always... Well, you might as well pack your portfolio up and just say, hey, this is it, that's all I've got to sell. <laughs> exactly. So for me, um, I have, again, force. it's quite a sort of mechanical thing. You sort of say, right now, Rachel, listen to yourself. You have to go and do that other thing that you fancy doing. Mm. It's just as important, even though most people will think she's lost it. So you might not publish it, and I think it's the, that inner critic, I try and encourage my clients to do this too. I think that your inner critic is valuable, but not at the time of creation. Yep. Don't let that inner critic be in on the act of creation. The inner critic, I think, should be listened to when it's, shall I publish this or not? But not when it's, should I take this or not? And for me, that's quite important to sort of postpone that that's that um, critical sieving of my work to a much later stage. Yeah, I think that yeah, that's a that's a very valuable skill for people to learn is the ability to, you know, do that critical analysis at the end as opposed to at the beginning or during the creation process. Yeah, absolutely right. Totally agree. Yeah. How do you define success in your photography? And it might be commercial success, but you know, I'm I'm more interested in the creative because the commercial stuff, you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So if if we park the need to earn my living from this bit somewhere and just talk about the creative, which is infinitely more interesting, um, and I would just say that if it was all about earning my living, I'd still be a lawyer. Let me just tell you, they make <laughs> way more money. <laughs> um, it, it was. It was Entering the mind to ask the question, how are you, how are you dealing with the, the differential in, <laughs> in income? Well, I'll come back to that. <laughs> um, but yet, um, I've always forgotten your question, but I think it's there. You asked me about success. Yeah, how so do you for, define success? Yeah. Success for me is uh, continuing, continuing to feel fulfilled 
by what I'm creating. And um, you can lose sight of that. You can't expect to feel fulfilled and successful all the time. Wouldn't it be lovely? But it would be marvellous, yeah. <laughs> it would be, wouldn't it? But, I mean, who does? God, it, but, who but, but honestly, if, if you felt that way, you probably wouldn't go out and take as many photos and you... Yeah, maybe. No, I had a lovely uh, six weeks this summer. So I, you know, doing workshops and doing all the other things, I'm super busy. And as discussed earlier, it's hard to find time for mm. my own creativity. Um, but I had six weeks this summer. Don't do workshops in the summer because the beaches here in England are way too crowded. Um, and anyway, it was horrible, horrible plain blue skies and harsh light. And, you know, so I just don't do workshops in the summer. And I had these six weeks where I was based at home out of my studio and I was just enjoying the photographs that I'd made in the previous several months and looking through them and starting to develop them and print them. Yep. Given that I told you I'm my happy place is on the beach making photos, that sounds contradictory. Mm -hmm. And I said to my husband only yesterday, I said, do you know what? Those six weeks that we had in the summer where we didn't go anywhere, we were just at home. And I spent the whole time in my studio in this lovely creative little world mm. where some of the nicest weeks we've had in a long time. I really, really enjoyed it. And it that was success. That was six weeks of pure creative fulfillment. And that for me is a definition of success. Yeah, well, that's great. Fantastic. Um, let, let's talk about the the financial bits and you know the, the the work side of things the administrative side of things if you like how do you balance the administration and the you know the running of the business side of things with your creative you, you mentioned earlier that it's harder to find time for your own projects or your own personal work so how do you do that and what what do you what techniques have you put in place to help you do that yeah i wish i could say I'd do it well <laughs> I don't. <laughs> it's a work in progress. Um, yeah, both businesses have um, become staggeringly successful when I apply the, the standard is what I expected. And uh, compared with what I expected, they have been staggeringly successful. And it is a more than full-time job to run two companies uh, that are both hugely busy yep. um, on your own. And I keep trying to um, find remote PAs and things, but there's not enough repeatable stuff for yeah. us to work. Yeah. yeah. So, Automation uh, only works when it's repeatable. <laughs> exactly. And it just isn't. So uh, I'm, I'm not good at this, but one of the things that has helped, and I'm trying, and I continue to try to be rigorous about this, is diarising days, for me to go and make photos and yep. treating them like a meeting. Yep. So, you know, if I've got a meeting in my diary or I'm doing a webinar or whatever it is, the photography equivalent of a meeting um, or a workshop, you know, obviously I have to stick to that. I, that's a promise from me to my clients and they're expecting me to show up. So I try to treat my diary and I try to put in my diary photography days for me that I then treat like a workshop. So yeah. there's, there's no way I'm not going. You know, and, and then the important thing is the weather. So if on the day the weather is appalling, well, if it was a workshop, I'd still go. 
Yeah. You know, and I'd have to get creative to appease the clients. And, and honestly, you're probably going to agree with this as well, because we agree on a lot. Um, <laughs> it's the days when the light's bad on a workshop that clients learn the most. Absolutely. Because they have to, they have yeah. to work. You know, when it's a spectacular light, it's like low-hanging fruit. Yeah, you, you go out and there's up. a beautiful sunrise. It's well open the shutter for the length of time you yeah, want. Yeah, everyone's there it just is. like, oh, wow, there it is. But <laughs> when it's dreadful light, then everyone's listening to you for their That's creative. Right. Yeah. So, um, so going back, you know, I would obviously always go on the workshop. So I need to be, I need to apply that same sort of uh, rigor to my own time and always go, mm even though the forecast is terrible. Um, and another thing I do, which is a wrinkle specifically for my genre, is because I'm a seascape photographer, I um, I go through the tide table for the year, and yep. when there's a big tide, I put it in my diary. Right. And I try to make, I mean, some of those days I have to use for workshops because they're in locations where I know we need a super big tide. But yeah. I'll try to make sure that I've cleared a few big tide days for myself and then absolutely honour that and go down to the coast. It's a way of respecting my own work and my own creativity to give it that status mm. in in the in the priority list, if you like. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's great. Again, I was talking to some, somebody about this very thing, about that when you've got a workshop or you've got clients and you've, you've got an activity that you're doing with them, you've made an obligation with them to, to do that. And I said, it's really important to make that same level of obligation on yourself for your own personal growth and what it is that you, you want to do. Because if you don't, then that'll slide. And that, as you say, and it ends up in creative death. <laughs> yeah, absolutely right. Um, and the other thing I'm trying to learn and this isn't photography related, but still, is um, make more time for the friends. Because I think when yeah. you work well, it's far too easy to end up working, as I do, 60-hour weeks or more. Mm. Um, because you work yourself, you don't want to say no to anything mm. unless it's you know, bad for you. Um, you're always going to be working. And it's too easy to lose touch with non-photography friends or even photography friends, um, because you've never got time for them. And that's still a work in progress for me, but I'm trying consciously to to readjust that yeah. way as well. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of marketing your personal brand, what, what do you think are the most important aspects of putting yourself out there for people that are thinking about starting their own business? Well, I think, first of all, if it's advice for people thinking of starting their own business, uh, I should just say that I didn't go, one day I'm a lawyer earning <laughs> salary, now I'm a full-time photographer. There was a big gap in between where I started to do photography as semi-professional. Yeah. So yeah, there was that epiphany moment where I said, right, I'm going to try and be full-time. But it wasn't like I... I had no income from photography up till then. I was already what people would now call semi-professional. And I think yeah. if you can do it gradually, that's absolutely the best option. Um, I have one friend who is a very capable photographer, but also has a very successful career in, in the city of London. Mm. And this friend decided a few years ago to give up her career and 
become a full-time professional. And this was almost from starting from scratch. She makes great photos, but she hadn't been earning any money from them. She yeah. wasn't selling them. And she gave up her work for a year. And then a year later, she's back in the city because it's too hard. She's trying yeah. again now, and I hope it will be a more success for her now, but it's just too hard. So let it build up gradually. Um, mm. I did quite a lot of pro bono work um, until I realized it was wrong for other reasons, because you're taking money out of the pockets of other photographers. Yep. Um, but I did do some charity pro bono work, which I would still advocate. And that allowed me to build up experience and the more experience you can get, the better. And then not to be too um, snobby about the things that you'll do at the start. So I did some pretty low brow exhibitions to start with, but that means you can build up a list of exhibitions on your website. Yeah. And you start to look like someone who knows what they're doing. And yeah. you know, not you know, be a bit humble. You know, don't don't be too proud to do yeah. work that initially you think you might think, oh, that gallery's no big deal. They don't really have much of a following or they're a bit new. Just say yes. As yep. long as they're not like as long as they're professional in the way they project themselves, then you know, they might just turn out to be really successful. And so I I try to be quite modest, not be too arrogant about it. And that I think really helps. Yeah. Um, and then the other big thing, I suppose, is just use the app. And this might seem obvious, but it isn't always when you're scrambling to make a career. Is I try very hard to have the highest level of integrity I can in dealing with everybody. Um, so, for example, on the very basic level, I reply to almost every comment I get on social media. Now, yep. If it's just a thumbs up, then I send a smiley back, you know. But if there's words, I use the words thank you. And then if I can decipher it, the name of the person who's commented. Um, sometimes they've got weird handles and you just thank you, smiley. If they've asked a question, then with one exception, which I'll come back to, I'll reply. And I'm quite generous with my time in that respect. Mm. And I think it's exhausting because I get a lot of comments. It's a lot yeah, of work. I, I can't yeah. automate that because I'm not just sending a you know, a standard reply. Yeah. Um, but I just think it shows respect. You know, if somebody said to you to your face, that's an amazing photograph, Grant, I don't think, Grant, having met you, that you would just turn away and walk away. No. You wouldn't probably say not. thank you. <laughs> you would say thank you very much. And and so I just think being polite and being respectful with everybody that I deal with, um, really helps which probably mm. isn't where you thought this answer was going to go but no <laughs> no no I'm, I'm always fascinated by how people answer that you know in terms of yeah. where where they place themselves in terms of their personal brands and i'm i've experienced photographers where you do comment and i get if you've got thousands of comments on instagram or wherever it, it's almost impossible to respond to all of them and there must be a point where you kind of go oh well, i'm gonna have to cut back at, at the very least 
But I don't know. I mean, I do have eighty thousand followers on Instagram, and I still manage it. But um, yeah. these days, but, you get far fewer comments because Instagram hates us, right? That, that's exactly <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> far fewer, far fewer of those eighty thousand are actually yeah. seeing any of your work. <laughs> I would just say, because um, I, I didn't, I quite, I didn't get there. I sort of hinted that there were were certain comments that I won't reply to. Sure. Um, I absolutely won't reply to the comment where question make mark or <laughs> um, or they they might actually say Iceland question mark if you can't even say I really like your photo is it Iceland if you just yeah. put Iceland question mark that's just rude so I don't reply to rude people yeah. um, or the one I got yesterday I think someone just their only comment was shutter speed question mark. Well, they can push off, you know. Yeah, I'm sorry, I've, that's just rude. I've had the settings question mark, you know. It's kind of like, well, it, yeah. and I, I have responded to a couple of those and basically saying, well, it's largely irrelevant because of the way I shoot oh. and the way I process. <laughs> yeah. But also, I just think be polite. You know, you, if that's someone right. says to me, oh, I love this photograph. It's an amazing effect. I'd really like to know what, what shutter speed I should start at. I'm going yeah. to I'm gonna tell. Yeah. I'm not, I there's nothing to hide. But, you know, that's that's a respectful way of asking, isn't it? Yeah, uh, ab absolutely. And I think that's, that's the thing. Is if you're being treated with respect, treat, treat the other person with respect too. That's... Yeah, I agree. Um, one of the things I like to explore a little bit is the, the nexus between place, technique, and um, I guess the, the creative process. And... You know, and, and what I'm trying trying to drive at there is: does the way that you shoot influence where you go, or does where you shoot influence how you shoot? Oh, interesting. Um, so it's less, much less about location for me mm -hmm. than it is for a lot of people, I think, because quite often there are no landmarks, there are no physical things in my field of view you know I'm just you could go to any sea in the world basically or any beach pretty much yeah. yeah but I think the tides are so important for me mm. and again I heard another photographer who I won't name whose work I massively respect um on a podcast very recently where she um dismissed quite clearly those of us who allow things like tides to influence us um I think that's okay you know, everyone is allowed their own point of view, but I don't really think there's any other way that I can work. I have to know what the tides are doing. And then on my, you know, bear in mind, we've already talked about my diarising photography days. Um, you know, if it's a big tide day, then I've got certain places I know will be interesting at on a big tide day. So yep. location has become a factor at that point. Um, I know other beaches that I would much prefer on a shallow tide day, on a neap tide Yeah, day. right. So there is there is something in there. There is some practical limitation to the pure creativity. Mm. Um, and, and so it would be completely wrong of me to say that location isn't relevant at all. But um, what I don't do is think to myself, well, I'd like to go and go to, I don't know, I'll mention a famous one in the UK. We've got a um, an arch called Durbel Door, which you may know of in Dorset. I've, I've, I've shot it once yeah. during the middle of the day. <laughs> yeah. Because that so, was when I was there. <laughs> yeah, because you're visiting it. Of course you would. And I would if I was there 
um, just, you know, hiking or something. I, I, I slapped a 10, 10, 10 uh, stop on and uh, did about a, actually a, a 10 and a 6. So I did about a 7 or 8 minute exposure. So all, all of the people swimming and everything just got removed pretty much. So. Well, that's cool. That is cool. So what I'm, I mean, it's a great spot, but mm. what I'm not ever going to do for my workflow is think, oh, today I'd like to go and photograph the arch at Durdledore. No. And if I did go to Durdledore on that beach, I, it's very, very likely that I would be just photographing the sea. Yep. Um, so it's quite nice not to be tied to location. Mm. Um, but as I said, I, ca I can't, I can't rule it out completely. Sure. Um, and for me, it's really, really important to go back to places repeatedly. Mm. So uh, that's what works again, the right workflow for my brain is that um, I tend to find if I'm somewhere for the first time that I have to say to myself, you'll be back before yeah. I can relax and start to make what I consider meaningful work. If I'm thinking this is the only time I'll ever be here, I'm probably going to end up copying some work I've seen online from, by someone else yeah, because I'm never yeah. going back. I'm going to want to get the iconic shot. Um, so I, even if I might not go back, I, I always say to myself, yeah, you'll be back, you know, chill out. And then, yeah. I, then I'm going to be happy to do something a little bit more quirky while I'm there and not yeah, worry if I miss the big booster. On on going back, are there any favourite locations that just keep drawing you back, and why are, why are they your favourites? What what is it that makes you keep going back time after time? Yeah, I've got a handful of absolute favourites. Um, so my nearest beaches have to be right up there at the top of that list because I can go to them more often than I can go anywhere else because sure. they're nearer. Um, so you probably know because I know you know Britain quite well. Um, Berlin Gap in East yep. Sussex. Mm -hmm. So you've got the Seven Sisters, but that's an interesting beach. It's tiny. Yeah, um, yeah. The, there's the there's not much uh, in the way of no. shingle there. No, so you've got you've got the you've got the sort of black or dark grey stones, large yeah. stones. And then you've got at low tide, but only if it's a big low tide, you've got a little bit of sand, but you know, the average hotel's footprint is probably bigger than the area of sand that you get revealed mm. at Berlin Gap at low tide. Um, but something about that beach just seems to me, I think the light's quite special because it's it's bounded by all these white cliffs, chalk cliffs, yeah. so they're passing the light back. And then you get a lot of chalk sediment in the water, which also bounces the light around. So yeah. I like the light there very much. New Haven is also in East Sussex. That's where I photographed all of my sirens because mm -hmm. it gets some pretty nice waves when it's stormy and yep. uh, it's the closest beach to me it's about an hour and a half for um that sort of thing um but then going further afield i am in love with the outer hebrides in scotland very special light there completely different from the light in uh, sussex and i go there usually uh, for a week once a year been there for a long time now um i love portugal the mm. coast north of Lisbon, the Silver Coast, as it's called, and yep. that, the most famous spot there, which anyone from Australia would have heard of, because you guys all love waves, is Nazare. Yeah, Nazare, yeah. 
biggest waves in the world, they claim, although I gather it's disputed, um, but they are amazing waves. And I have been going there for a while now. And in fact, my husband and I love it so much that we're building a house uh, 20 minutes south of Nazareth. Okay. Um, so that's so the great. plan to retire there? Uh, I don't know. We'll see. Not not yet. <laughs> not yet. Not quite there yet. Fair enough. Um, I I love Iceland. I've become the um, Iceland specialist at ocean capture. Mm. So uh, really like Iceland. I've just come back from a month in Iceland. And that oh. was really special. Yeah. And I love Oregon. Have you been to Oregon? I have not yet. It's uh, it, it's one of those bucket lists that's uh, still outstanding. So is Iceland. Um, and surprisingly, so is the South Island and New Zealand for me. I still haven't. Have you not uh, been? I've been to the North Island four or five times, but never to the South Island. Oh, I've beaten you there. I've been. <laughs> <laughs> that was a long time ago when I was doing that solo backpacking trip. I went there. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so Oregon is very special. Uh, the Oregon coast is is gorgeous. And because my daughter's based in the USA, we go out to see her and then I, I go to Oregon. Um, I've probably forgotten somewhere, but those are core places for me. And yeah. I I just love going back over and over and over again. What's the most memorable experience you've had uh, in photography? Uh, it's going to be Storm Imogen. Mm. And that's the first big storm when I had had my idea for silence. Um, it was the 8th of February, 2016. See, I remember the date because I'm in that file in Lightroom quite often. Yeah. Um, and it was six hours of the most gnarly, exciting, hard, exhilarating, cold, sore, wet, amazing photography of my life. And then, I mean, I took 3,000 exposures in those six hours because, you know, this is, this sort of photography is much more like sports or wildlife photography than it yeah, is. Yeah, you're taking multiple shots of the same wave, yeah. Um, so high, high speed, continuous drive and fast shutter speed. And it was so, so gnarly that you just don't know what you've got in camera. But there were a couple of occasions. I remember seeing through the lens something amazing and knowing that I clicked the shutter, which we've all had that experience. And it's fantastic, isn't it? It's just yeah, like, oh. absolutely. <laughs> And, no, nothing uh, better than that feeling. I've, I've definitely nailed that it, one. <laughs> yeah, it's just incredible. And yeah. I can remember there was a particular moment that has always stuck in my head near the end, so maybe an hour before I left. Um, I'd been, all of those pictures were taken with my 70 to 200 lens. And I was shooting at the long end of that, lying on the beach. And there was this moment when I felt as if I was in the sea. I was mm. in the waves. I was actually part of what I was photographing rather than apart right. from it, observing it. And that, I mean, other people call it flow or the zone or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But for me, that, that I've never forgotten that moment. It was, I can put myself back in that moment in my head. And that was definitely the best moment I've ever had as a photographer so far. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> what about your worst experience? What What's... What's the horror story? Everybody has one, yeah. at least one. Yeah, I do. Um, okay, this is me doing everything I've said that I don't do. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was at Nazareth. 
and it was um i again it's this whole thing about knowing a location mm. so i'm at risk i'm putting myself in danger when i go somewhere for the first time yeah. i don't want to but and i will try my best not to because it's not clever to put yourself at risk but inevitably until you know the location you are more and more at risk than once you know it absolutely and the very first time i went to nazare i went down on the instead of shooting from the cliff top which is where i now shoot from i wanted to do something different because i'd seen loads of pictures from the cliff top mm. um so i went down onto the beach and i wanted to get a really low point of view so with sirens i was lying down for those because i want them to stand proud of the horizon yeah so i was going to adopt the same policy there and i carefully observed i shot on a, it was a falling tide and i carefully observed the beach for a long time and noticed how high the biggest waves were going and positioned myself out of reach and then i lay down as flat as i could possibly get and i was photographing waves breaking against the promontory further out to sea and i was not yep. paying attention to the waves between there and me Mm. and a sneaker wave came up the beach and it went right over the top of me and wow. many 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 meters beyond me up the beach and then pulled back as well of course now i was not in danger had i been standing up it would have not it wouldn't have gone beyond my knees and yeah. i've quite oh. often been standing up to my knees in pulling back sneaker waves on tough beaches and i know i can cope with that i wouldn't yep. get pulled over but I wasn't, I was lying flat as I could possibly get on the beach. And um, I, you know, I swallowed half the wave, uh, breathed it in, swallowed it, uh, was completely soaked right through to my skin. And unfortunately, uh, despite the fact that I put my arm up straight away, my camera was completely inundated. Yep. Now, bear in mind, I've been looking forward to this trip for a long time. First trip to Nazareth, and I'd only just got there. Mm. and my camera was completely dead um i mean there was water pouring out of every possible place water can pour out of from a camera <laughs> so um it was i was it was winter it was december so although portugal's pretty warm it's still once that happens to you you're dead cold yeah. so i was super super cold i was absolutely soaking my camera was dead and it was a bit of a walk back to the car and it was it, acutely embarrassing and very, very humbling, using the proper word, using humbling in the proper sense of it. Yeah. And lesson learned, lesson learned. <laughs> <laughs> I think you, you, you described a few things there that I'm very familiar with being a bit of a seascaper myself and that practice of reading the beach before you set foot on it, you know, so find, find a nice safe vantage point and have a good look around before before you get out there and i mean the, the 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 safety aspect of this you know can't be overstressed in my opinion you've really got to make sure that you know you've got the right gear you're you're going somewhere that you understand and yeah as you said if you're going to somewhere for the first time you know it's not much good turning up there at three four o'clock in the morning and you know it's it's pitch dark and you can't see what's going on um yeah, <laughs> yeah. what has the practice of photography taught you about nature it's taught me to respect it 
Mm. I think I already did. But um, actually, I was just chatting about this with someone else yesterday. I I am increasingly saddened by um, the attitude of some photographers um, who, in every other respect, I like and admire, but mm. they have this I everything about them suggests that they see nature purely as a resource for them to exploit. Yeah. They go out and they, they're just there to get their photos. And there is uh, nothing more to it. And I think we have a duty as people who are, after all, being given so much by nature mm. to, to not look at it merely as a resource for our exploitation. So, I mean, just on a very simple level, um, I would always try when I've been on a shoot on a beach, when I leave the beach, to take away not only my own stuff, which is obvious, but also to, as I'm walking back to the car, I'm going to pick up as much as I can carry of sea plastic yeah. that I found on the beach and just dispose of it as responsibly as I can. Yeah, um, I've I've got a bag that I carry around specifically yeah, for that. Yeah, and it's not even like we've had to inconvenience ourselves, is it? No, you know, no. we're just walking back to the car and we just pick it, pick up whatever you just we bend can. down, pick it up, put it in the bag. Yeah, it's not hard. exactly. <laughs> but it's amazing how often I'm on a beach with other photographers. Yeah, and they see me doing that, and they never pick anything up and put it in the bag themselves. Yeah, um, and I just don't understand that. So. For me, that's become standard practice. Mm. And you know what it really does as well is it, it gives back to us too because it makes you feel good. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it feels super stressed about climate change and, and all, all that's going on. Mm. But it makes me feel good if I've picked up some plastic. And it might not make me feel good for very long, but that that feeling good is pretty pretty worthwhile. Does, so um does the job. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And when I when I leave my workshops in Iceland, for example, I mean the first thing that and this is probably going to put people off booking, but so what? The first <laughs> thing that um, I do is is I explain to them about the fragility of the Icelandic landscape, particularly because I, I I've just done two weeks in the interior with people. We've yeah. gone to really remote places where we didn't see any other human all day. Mm. Um, about not standing on the moss because it takes 70 plus years for that moss to grow. It might not look like anything, but it's had to work really hard to get its foothold yep. and we don't need to step on it. Um, you know, and other things like that. Um, I'm not perfect. I, I got on an aeroplane to fly to Iceland. Mm. I'm clearly not perfect. Sure. Um, you know, we're all just by breathing, we're all contributing to, to the problem. Um, but there are things we can do. And I read a, a book recently that's about dealing with climate change anxiety, which I have loads of. Mm. And it said, we don't need a few people to be perfect. We just need everyone to try yeah. to do what they can. Um, and that kind of resonated with me. So Yeah, I think that's a great message. Yeah. yeah. What do you do when you hit a creative wall and you, you know, you, you, run out of ideas or whatever it is that you, you're feeling at the time. I just make more photos. They might okay. be shocked. Can I use that word on a podcast? Yeah, no, no, no I, I don't care. <laughs> okay, you're Australian. So it's it's my podcast. I don't, I don't... <laughs> okay. Well, they might be shocked, um, but making the photos is still fun. 
and I just try to be as much as I can be. And it don't, I don't want to suggest that I've got it all sorted and I'm perfect. I have just as much self-doubt and bad patches as anybody else. Mm. But um, that's why I know what I need to do uh, because I've been through it and continue to go through it. And it is to constantly remind myself to be experience-driven, not results-driven. Yeah. Kind of nice to come back full circle to where we started, I think. Because um, it's it's awesome being beside the sea. It's wonderful. I doubt very many people have gone to their deathbed wishing they spent less time on the beach. No, so, <laughs> you know, go back down to the beach with the camera and make shite photos until I make one that's not shite. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a that's a really good, good uh, I, I guess, practice to, to, to get into. What do you see as being the biggest challenge facing photography right now? Ah, oh, that's a really good question. Um, photography generally, I can't say because I don't know enough about documentary photography and portraiture sure. and stuff. You know, I'm, but... I'm largely talking landscape photography, I guess. Okay. Um, yeah, the biggest challenge facing us is... Uh, working out re reworking out our place within this whole difficult world that we're now in mm. and what are our responsibilities and what should we no longer do and how are we going to balance that in a sort of conscientious way um yeah. i'll give you an example because i'm constantly worrying about this and renegotiating it with myself and and changing constantly changing what I do so this is going to alienate half your listeners now but I gave up meat and fish which is a sort of meat in my opinion I gave that yeah. up a couple of years ago because it's one way of balancing my impact on the planet sure lots of people still eat meat it's not my place for me to tell them off for that because yeah. that's their personal choice it would be super counterproductive for me to do that in any way they might have given up something else. They might no longer fly. I still mm. fly. So, you know, I've got a daughter who lives in the USA. I'm not never going to see her. So someone's got to get on an aeroplane. Um, you know, I flew to Iceland for my workshops. So I, I'm not perfect. And um, while I was in Iceland on one of the workshops, which was organized by Ocean Capture, it included um, doors off helicopter flight. And... Um, there was an empty seat on the last flight. So I wouldn't normally have gone up because I was one of the leaders and I was mm. teaching coastal work. I wasn't teaching aerial photography. But on the last flight, there was a spare seat. So it was going to fly empty or, you know. With somebody on it. Yep. Or with me in that empty seat. Um, so I said, thanks. And I went. And... I uh, didn't have my camera straps with me because I don't normally use camera straps. But And I wasn't expecting to fly because this was for the clients and I wasn't expecting to get to go up. So I had to go to a little local shop and the closest I could come to stream was I found some Icelandic ribbon with the Icelandic mm. flag on the ribbon. And I bought this and tied it to my camera and my camera looked so silly that I did a little photograph and put it on Instagram in a story and I said, this is what happens when you don't have a strap and you've got going on a helicopter flight and somebody who shall remain nameless but who I've now blocked which is extreme for me because I hardly ever block anybody somebody another professional photographer sent me an extremely harsh direct message 
telling me off, telling me that I surely know better because it, of the carbon footprint of helicopter flights. All right. Now, that, that's stung to an extent because, of course, I know he's right that a helicopter has quite a big carbon footprint. Yep. But I also think he was completely wrong to do that because mm. I expect he, he eats beef twice a week, probably, like most people. Yep. I expect he does all sorts of other things that are very bad for the planet. Does he drive a car? Yeah. But, I mean, maybe I'm doing something like not eating meat when he's eating meat, and sure. I'm not going to get into a debate about whether one helicopter flight when it was an empty seat is worse than eating beef twice a week. I don't know. I don't have those statistics. It might not be. Yeah, but I yeah. think we've got to find a way in photography when we're out there photographing these fragile places that are being impacted so badly by our actions to to negotiate a position where we support other people who are making great choices. Yep. Where we don't alienate people because we don't approve of their particular recipe for uh, dealing with the problem. Um, and we don't virtue signal as if we're perfect and everyone yep. else is beneath us. We've got to negotiate a, a fair and reasonable dialogue where we can help each other in a, in, a, in a constructive, positive way. And I think that is the biggest thing facing landscape photography because of our subject. Our subject is the place that's perhaps showing the most mm. our impact mm. on it. And I don't have a solution. I'm no better than anybody else, but I'm trying. Yeah, very, very, very good to uh, to, to hear. What do you think is the future of landscape photography? It could be quite bleak, couldn't it? Potentially. It could be quite bleak. Yeah. Um, there's an awful I mean, one, lot one of the... Sorry, go on. Yeah, go on. No, no, you go because I'm. I was going to going to say one of the, one of the things that has come up before, um, and what kind of worries me is that you, with climate change and the impacts, is that you end up with climate change porn being the stock in trade for landscapers, and what I mean by that is you know the dramatic impacts, floods, fires, etc., become you know the subject and. I don't have a problem with that per se, but if that's all it becomes and it's really about the drama and the 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 the, the image is not sending the message, hey, we've actually got to do something about this. If it's yeah. about trying to gain likes or whatever, and it's it's really just, well, here's an image without any commentary on, you know, look, this is this is shocking. <laughs> something needs to be done. Uh, then that's a problem, you know. I agree. Um, I think it's it's part of a, an even bigger potential problem in, in that I think there is a there is a, a voice out there that suggests that a picture is worthless unless it has a worthy message. Yeah. And um, I think there's a danger with that as well. It overlaps massively with what you very rightly just su suggested as a concern. That if we feel like our work must be about climate change because we're photographing nature, and that's the only worthy work, that that we're going to have a very um, narrow 
field of landscape photography that it'll become ever more narrow. I mean, it actually art for art's sake is a debate that's been going for centuries. Yeah, that, that'll never end. <laughs> yeah, and it will never end. Um, I think it. I I do believe in art for art's sake. Mm -hmm. I don't think everything has to have a documentary worthy message. Um, yep, and I, I agree totally. There is huge value in in what art does. It communicates one human being's view on the world with another, and mm. it allows that other person, the viewer, to interpret using their own worldview. It's the most. It's an alchemy, really. It's the most amazing coming together of of views and worldviews and and personal views, and I think that should be enough on its own. And if we only photograph what's going wrong in nature as well, I think we give a false picture. It's like if I, um, random thought in my head. So let imagine, let's go back a few decades. If I was a photographer and you said to me, right, you're commissioned now to go and photograph, um, do a documentary series on um, racial conflict in Brixton. Let's just pick something out of the air. Because yep. I lived in Brixton when there was, uh, you know, that was an issue. Sure. <laughs> that photographer's going to go out now and he's going to find all the pictures that he can of that and he's not going to photograph the two guys who are best friends having a pint outside the pub who are of different races because yeah. that's not part of his brief, right? Yeah. And he's going to give a false impression of what Brixton's really like mm. or was really mm. like then. And it's the same with, with landscape photography. We, we can't just photograph what's bad, what's wrong. We can't ignore that. That would be wrong too. But yeah. I think we, we should also photograph what's still beautiful, what's still amazing, what's still magnificent, because it inspires and it gives hope and mm. it inspires people. You know, that's what we need to protect. Totally agree. If you weren't a photographer, what would you be? I'd be a writer. <laughs> <laughs> it was what I always wanted to be as a child, okay. and I even wrote a novel. It's really bad. No one's going to see it. I'm not telling you what it's called. Um, and um, did it get published? Yeah, uh, no. I got. I did get a short story published, but I knew okay. the novel was, was so bad. I never sent it off to anybody. Um, it was sci-fi because I'm a geek. Um, so, but that I would probably have kept plugging away at that, mm. or I'd be an academic English literature academic. That's probably more likely. Okay, interesting. Um, are there any particular pho photographers that have caught your eye recently that you think I should be talking to? Uh, it depends. Do you do you just do landscape photography? Yeah, it's landscape photography world, so it's all about I guess landscape. So. Is in the name. But uh, you know, for me, that's a very broad definition. So seascape landscape cityscape even street photography i see to a certain degree less so the people as you know the people watching aspect of street but you know street and architecture sort of uh where it's examining the the, the man-made landscape i i incorporate into that in, in my mind anyway and it's my podcast so i can make the rules up as i go along okay Oh, I'll just bombard you with names then. No. Have you had <laughs> my friend Simon Baxter on? Not as yet, no. But, um, he's a woodland photographer. Yep. And, um, I'm, I'm aware we, of his work. Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. He and I actually did a workshop together a few years ago in Torridon. Nice. Um, he's a nice guy, and I think he'd be a good person to have on. Um, 
had Sandra Bartosha. No, she is on my list though. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sandra and I just did a workshop in Iceland together with Hans Strand, Jonathan Critchley and Ragnar Axelsson. Nice. So I had an opportunity to talk to Sandra a bit and um, I think she would be a good person to have on the show. Um, her book, her new book, I've got both her books. Um, they're both excellent. Her new book is only recently out and it's called, I think, Rhythm or Rhythms of Nature. Mm. And it's it's gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous, Grant. If you get a chance to see it, see a copy, you should have keep, a look. Keep an eye out for it, yeah. Yeah, it's really, really beautiful work. Um, so she'd be a great person to have on. Um, have you had Hans on, Hans Strat? No, not yet. He's actually, I mean, you know, he's super famous. He's a very nice guy, really mm. approachable. Cool. Um, and then if you want to have like total A-lister hero, <laughs> then you, you could you could try um, approaching Ragnar Axelsson, okay. who is like, you know, photography god. In yeah. fact, I so much of his work <clears throat> that despite the fact we were both leading a workshop together, you know, we were there for a week with the others. I was too shy to speak to most of the time because <laughs> I'm such a massive fan of his. Yeah. Um, I mean, his English is impeccable. He wouldn't have any difficulty at all with a podcast. Fantastic. Thank you for that. I've got one more question for you. And for many of my listeners, it's the most important one I ask uh, each guest. Do you like pineapple on pizza? God, no. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> No, just don't go there. Why would you do that to a pizza? <laughs> no, some some people like it, and I think it's important for us to get to the bottom of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't. Know. It's my least favorite fruit. Full stop. Though. Really? So okay. It's too sweet. It's, it's, wow. I, I'm more a savoury person than a sweet person. Okay. Well, I'm I, I'm a bit of a uh, fence sitter on that. If it if it's on the pizza, I pick it off, but I won't order it. So. Yeah, but it's normally with ham, isn't it? And I don't yeah, ham, ham, the old ham and pineapple, or what we call yeah. the Hawaiian. We we yeah. also have uh, the weird quirk of adding a egg and calling oh, it okay. an Aussie pizza. Uh, no, to yeah. to the to the ham and pineapple pizza. Uh, yeah, so you've well, got yeah, a yeah, you crack an egg work. on top, leave the yolk yeah. hole, and you yeah. Okay. I'm, yeah, I'm not, I'm not about that, that one. No, no, not not for me. I do like I do like a jalapeno though. Oh yeah, they're they're not too bad. They're not too bad. Well, it's been absolutely marvellous uh, getting to know you, Rachel. Uh, where can people find your work? Oh, I'm ever so easy to find because it's just my name, and there's no one else with it in the world. So um, as long as you spell the first name right with two A's, R A C H A E L, and then my surname is pretty phonetic, T-A-L-I-B-A-R-T, then Brilliant. you'll find Fantastic. Thanks very much. Oh, Grant, it's been really a real pleasure to chat to you. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Cheers. Thanks again for listening to Landscape Photography World. I hope you enjoyed the show and keep listening because I'll be joined by some great guests in upcoming episodes. You can find my work in this podcast at grantswinburnphotography.com. I'm also on Vero. Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Grant Swinburne. Hope to see you out shooting soon. Mm -hmm.